0: Let's turn in our copies of God's word to the first chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans. Romans chapter 1 verses 18 through 32. Romans 1 beginning in verse 18, let's listen now to the inspired word of God. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. They did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things." Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and worshipped and served the creature, rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do things which are not fitting being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. May the Lord bless the reading of His word to us this morning. Amen. We're relying upon God for His help this morning. Let's turn back to Romans chapter 1. As we continue our consideration of this latter half of the chapter, verses 18-32, through where the Apostle Paul is demonstrating the universality of human sin. Not just among the Jews, he'll deal with that in chapter 2, but he's thinking here of all the Gentile nations of the world, particularly those who didn't have special revelation, who didn't have a copy of the Old Testament or of the Bible, the, the ignorant nations outside the covenant community. And yet he says, verse 18, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of Men of all mankind, not just a certain group of men that have seen a Bible and are thereby accountable. No, all mankind, all men, women, and children who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Well, isn't that unfair? No, it's not. There's no excuse because what may be known of God is manifest in them. It's manifest inside their conscience and the revelation of God's existence and attributes in the creation is manifest in the midst of their community among these nations. For God has shown it to them. So God is actively proclaiming His glory, His existence, His creative wisdom and power, His generous goodness. He's proclaiming these things constantly through creation, And he's proclaiming the standard of righteousness through conscience. That's God showing it to them. But because of sin, a lot of these things are blurred because of human sin. And ultimately, the natural response of mankind is to suppress that truth in unrighteousness. They don't want the light of God's revelation. They want to walk in darkness. And so they're Guilty, They're culpable, as we would say. They deserve the judgment of God for the light that they have rejected. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Now we saw that this natural response of unbelief and truth suppression by the unchurched pagan this natural response into which he was conceived and born through total depravity, that this has stages. We could say stages of development, but maybe that is the wrong word. Stages of regression. Stages by which the natural depravity and unbelief and disobedience of the human heart against God gets worse and worse and worse, not just on an individual level, but on a corporate, collective level national or we might even say cultural level and we said that there are five stages of regression here five stages of cultural decline so by the way Paul is not an individualist he's dealing with individual salvation but he's also looking at mankind collectively holistically what he says here is relevant for each one of us if if there's any of us here who reads this section of scripture specifically the last few verses of the chapter and can't honestly confess that you're guilty of at least one let's be honest many if not all of these sins if you can't do that then there's a problem for you as an individual and Paul is really going there but he also wants to deal collectively and culturally with these unchurched pagan nations and he he he's in a way he's demonstrating the, the wisdom and the perspective of the Bible. That there's nothing that's happening in the world today of which God is ignorant or of which the Bible, we could say, is ignorant. Now, there's nothing that's happening in our nation, in our Western culture, that the Bible doesn't know like the back of its hand. And so when you read Romans chapter 1, one of the things that ought to draw you in to listen to that message of the Gospel for you as an individual is just how well the Bible 2000 years ago has understood human culture even in our own day. These five stages, we said it begins with ingratitude. People that have the truth and to an extent to a certain extent maybe affirm certain truths that they've gained from God's revelation, but they suppress it and really what they do is they they have a sin of omission by not glorifying God accordingly so they see his eternal power and Godhead and maybe they in a sense generally speaking believe that there is this powerful God out there this creator but they don't glorify him as God and they don't give thanks they don't act upon the revelation that they've received stage 1 ingratitude stage 2 as we'll see idolatry Stage two is idolatry, and from idolatry it goes to immorality. From immorality to perversion, and from perversion to chaos. And you can gauge and evaluate our own western culture, even our own national culture, in these stages, from when in terms not of general revelation through creation and conscience, But this same structure may be applied equally to special revelation when the the truth of God's Word first planted its its flag on the soil of this continent even down to our own day as we, I would argue, as we enter now stage 5 of chaos. But in any event, that's just the general framework. We're going to get there step by step. Thus far we've considered... Stage one, ingratitude. And again, although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor did they give thanks. Which commandment are they fundamentally violating? Well, they're fundamentally violating the first commandment. That we ought to have no other gods before us. As God revealed that to Israel, He said, look, there's a unique reason you need to have no other gods. Because... None of the other gods saved you from bondage in Egypt. I am the Lord your God who redeemed you out of the house of bondage, out of the land of Egypt. I brought you out. I'm your God. I'm your Redeemer. Uh, For the unchurched pagan, though, at least they could say, well, God is their creator. But for Israel, God is their creator and their Redeemer, at least outwardly from slavery. And he says, therefore, have no other God before me. It's not saying there's a list of gods and, well, Jehovah is at the top of the list and after that it's Allah and Baal and, uh, you know, no, it's saying no other gods before His presence. If you come before the judge, you come into the presence of the judge. Well, God's presence is everywhere and then some, He's not only omnipresent, but He's transpatial, even Space and time cannot contain His infinite presence. So He's everywhere. So if you have an idol, if you have anything in your life, in your heart, or in your life that takes the place of God, anything that sort of pushes God to the side, or by which you seek to supplement what you see as an inadequacy in God, anything that takes the place of God, even 1% of the glory and the devotion and the zeal that God deserves... That is another God. That is a rival God. We're not saying that there are other gods, really, but we make them gods. Lords many and gods many in heaven and earth, as Paul says, the religious objects of worship among the nations are false gods. They don't exist, and yet, they are other gods. They take the place of the true God. And so it can be for us other things, not just false religion, but it can be other priorities in our life, other earthly things. Other considerations that push God to the side. Well, the first commandment requires us to glorify Him as God and to give thanks to Him, to attribute all goodness to Him. And because the stage one, ungrateful recipients of revelation failed to respond in that way to the revelation, they moved to stage two. In other words, The stage one ingratitude created a vacuum because they don't glorify God according to the revelation He's given. They don't don't act upon it. They, They in a sense believe in this powerful God, but they don't act upon it. And so now there's a vacuum and immediately these other alternatives come in to fill that vacuum in their heart, in their life, in their society, in their family, in their nation. These other things push the knowledge of God out. The vacuum is filled by idolatry. So we move to stage two. You didn't put God where He belonged, so now stage two, here, here comes the next customer to try to fill that void. Idolatry. Verse 25, those who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Notice there that there are two forms of idolatry. So when what God deserves is transferred to the creature, okay, again, that's idolatry. Taking the prerogatives of God. What God is due. What God deserves. Our love, our obedience, and all these things. When we take what God deserves and transfer it to someone other than God, which would necessarily be a creature, because there's only... The Creator and the creature. We transfer that to the creature. That is idolatry. But notice the two ways in which that is done. First, intellectual idolatry. They change or trade or exchange the truth of God for the lie. The truth of God for the lie. So the truth comes from God and the lie comes from, well... A creature, whether it's Satan, whether it's mankind itself, uh, the lie doesn't come from God. It comes from the creature. So you're exchanging God's truth, what God has revealed to our minds as true. If we're thinking of the unchurched pagan, that's general revelation. God exists. He's the creator. He's powerful and wise and generous. If we're thinking of nations and cultures like our own that have special revelation, then we're saying that we're dealing here with both general and special so we see creation and conscience and existence and attributes of God. But on top of that, we have the Bible, which adds further clarity to the existence and attributes of God. The Bible gives us a, a far clearer perspective on who God is because of the muddied waters of human depravity. So we have that, but the Bible also gives us things beyond what nature teaches us. We have the doctrine of the Trinity. We can know God personally and savingly through Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. We have the 66 books of the Bible to give us the entire outlook that God has revealed. The Christian worldview, we might say. And so the first aspect of idolatry is intellectual idolatry, where we trade, for the unchurched pagan, general revelation... For our own ideas, the lie. Satan's lies, human lies, our own opinions, every man doing what's right in his own eyes. We trade that truth of God's revelation for the lie. In our own culture, we're trading general and special revelation combined for the alternatives to the Christian faith. The alternatives to biblical truth and biblical Christianity. So there is an intellectual idolatry. We're supposed to get truth from God. But instead, we suppress that truth and unrighteousness and we look for truth from ourselves, from somebody else, from science and philosophy that is in rebellion against the truth of God. We, we, we take away God's prerogative to define truth and righteousness and we go seeking for those things somewhere else. That is intellectual idolatry. Trading God's revelation of truth for any alternative whatsoever and uh, professing to be wise they became fools so you can see this type of intellectual idolatry is a humanistic form of intellectual idolatry It's humanistic. It's saying we worship human opinions. We worship our own reason. We worship our own take on conscience and righteousness and holiness. We worship our own opinions and ideas. We worship human science, human philosophy, man-made religion. We worship these things. This is how we decide the difference between right and wrong. This is how we decide the difference between truth and error. We have the wisdom. We are the people. Wisdom dies with us. We profess to be wise. Second form of idolatry is religious idolatry. Verse 25 again, notice that those who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, uh, those who said, We're not going to submit in faith to God and His revelation. Uh, we, know, we know everything there is to know or we'll figure it out through our own human reason and rationality. And so what did they, what did they do once they became intellectual idolaters? What happened to their religious life? They worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So it's the intellectual idolatry that leads to the religious idolatry. Once you think you're smart enough to figure it all out, Pretty soon you're going to apply that to your religious life and say, Well, who decides how who God is and what he's like and which parts of revelation we should take seriously and which parts are on the cutting room floor and who who decides how God is to be worshipped and how his church ought to function? Well, that's us. We're wise. We have the knowledge. So intellectual idolatry leads to religious idolatry. And when the church, thinking here of our own context uh, with general and special revelation, when the church operates in that way of imposing human ideas and opinions and preferences in place of the truth of God, that is an immediate indication that somewhere along the line, we professed ourselves to be wise. Maybe we didn't do it outwardly. But deep down in the recesses of our prideful human flesh, we believe that we have the wisdom we need, and we put God's word to the side. Well, intellectual and religious idolatry. This morning, God willing, we're going to consider the first of these two aspects of stage two idolatry, namely intellectual idolatry. Those who believe they're wiser than God, those who believe they're wiser than God's revelation. Whether general revelation for the unchurched pagan or general and special revelation, or we might even say general revelation viewed through the lens of special revelation for the the, the person in Western society today who has the Bible, at least on the bookshelf. Intellectual idolatry. People who think they're wiser than God's revelation. Look at verse 21 is the transition between stage 1 and stage 2. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Why are these two separate stages in terms of how I'm preaching through this passage? The reason I would argue is because of that word, became. It's telling us that a transition takes place. They have the knowledge of God and they don't act on it. And then, what happens? They became. Something happened. Something changed. They entered the next phase, the next stage. Namely, idolatry. They became futile in their thoughts. Uh, the word futile here means vain or empty, or fruitless, or useless, pointless, Uh, they began to fill the vacuum of God's revealed truth with their own vain speculations. In fact, the word thoughts here is the same word that's consistently translated as arguments throughout the New Testament. So, They've got God's revelation, they're not acting upon it, it's sitting there collecting dust on the shelf, and pretty soon, their sinfully depraved hearts and minds begin to come up with foolish and pointless speculative arguments and considerations. We think here of the Greek philosophers, these useless debates. Some of it is insightful, but for the most part, it's, it's just foolishness. Much of it is foolishness. Uh, if we had time, we could we could go into that. That's not really a, an area of my own expertise. But but the fact is, the, the Greek philosophers, Paul testifies consistently, fell into foolishness. That's why when the gospel was preached to these pagan Greek philosophers on Mars Hill in Acts 17, they didn't take it seriously. Most of them rejected it. They, it, it was uh, foolishness to the Greeks and their own categories of philosophical thought just couldn't make sense of the gospel and so they perished eternally because of their stupidity they wouldn't listen they wouldn't listen to God's revealed truth in the gospel and they were futile in their thoughts so so they waste all of their time they could find great knowledge through general revelation but instead they suppress it and turn to their own vain useless debates in addition Paul says here that their foolish hearts were darkened. So they're no longer really studying God's revelation. They're supplementing it and even arguing against it and corrupting it. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Again, you see the transition, the process. They had the truth, but then they didn't act upon it. And uh, they, they became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts are being darkened, continually, increasingly, <laughs> gradually being darkened. The word foolish here is a Greek word, asunitas. And in the word sunitas, you, you can see the s-u-n in English words, it's s-y-n very often. You think of synthesis, bringing two things together, you know, putting two and two together, making logical connections, Well, the fact is that because they rejected God's revelation, their vain and empty speculations led their foolish hearts to be darkened. It caused their hearts to not be able to make connections. It caused their hearts to be irrational and illogical, to not be able to put two and two together. And that's because they were darkened. Thinking again of our own context, again, it's easier it's lower hanging fruit for us to see this through the lens of our own culture with special revelation. The Bible says that in God's light, we see light. That His revelation is a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. That apart from God's revelation, we're blind, we're groping in the darkness. And the fact is that when we reject God's revelation, pretty soon we can't even make obvious, logical Connections, and uh, you can see in um, you can see in our own society we have laws that make it a double homicide to murder a pregnant woman. It's a double homicide in in certain jurisdictions. But if that woman were to go to an abortion clinic and have the abortion doctor kill her baby, that's not a homicide at all. Okay, think about that. That's ridiculous. Uh, obviously the people in that jurisdiction. Now, we're happy that they have the law about the double homicide. Some people aren't even, aren't even uh, up to speed to that extent. But the fact is we allow laws that make it a double homicide to kill a pregnant woman, but you can kill the baby and it's not a homicide at all. Uh, we have Supreme Court justices who can't tell the difference between a man and a woman because apparently they skipped out on biology class. Uh, they're not a biologist. People that reject God's revelation and now it seems like they can't reason. They can't put one foot in front of the other. They have no idea. Here's a, a person who is a woman doesn't know what a woman is. Here are people that will punish you for killing a baby if the mom dies but not if the mom consents to it. One is murder. One is a homicide. The other is just a woman's right to choose. Uh, that, that's not just wicked. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It, it's asunatos. It's foolish. It's irrational. It's illogical. And notice what Paul says it's not their foolish minds. They're not using the minds God gave them to think clearly. It's their foolish, irrational, and illogical hearts. When the Bible speaks of the heart, it doesn't necessarily exclude the mind. It doesn't necessarily exclude the mind. But it's, it means the mind in connection with the will. So it's it's not excluding the mind, but it's including the will, the desires of the heart. So the mind and the heart, the mind and the will are included often when we see the word heart. And that's the case here. So this is willful foolishness. This is not as though people just happen to have a low IQ. This is people that are very very intelligent. In fact, sometimes the higher your IQ, the more you're tempted to this intellectual idolatry and the more irrational and illogical your heart actually is because it's a willful folly. Those who reject God's revelation here, their foolish hearts are darkened and it's it's in a sense they they can't connect the dots because they won't connect the dots. Men prefer darkness over light. They don't want to know the answer, and so they end up just reaffirming in their own academic echo chambers what they wanted to believe all along. The same people that say, oh, y'all are Christians because you were raised that way. Well, a lot of us here weren't. Um, But we can say in our society, y'all are secular humanists because you were raised that way, and it's actually true. Look at the curriculum in the schools. The people who believe... The intellectually idolatrous religion of secular humanism believe it because they were raised that way. Um, so really, there, there, there's not a lot of intellect involved. It's actually people are just conditioned, and their sinful nature kicks in, and their foolish hearts are darkened. Um, the Bible tells us, by the way, that the opposite of foolishness is wisdom, and the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. If you think about that, the beginning of wisdom is not actually an intellectual thing. Intellectual wisdom, and I'm saying that in a good sense here, I'm using that statement, not merely intellectual wisdom, but wisdom has an intellectual aspect. So, intellectual wisdom itself is the fruit of something that is not intellectual, that is spiritual and religious and uh, M- moral. True wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. True wisdom is a person who is wise enough to start with God, wise enough to believe God, to believe what His revelation says in creation and conscience through the lens of Scripture. The, a person who fears God and departs from evil. Job 28.28. 28. But we don't want to do that. We want to trust in our own heart. Proverbs says, those who trust in their own heart are fools. And so that's what we're seeing here. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Also, Paul says, professing to be wise, they became fools. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Professing themselves to be wise enough that they don't need to be entirely dependent upon their Creator God as a basis for truth. Wise enough to not need God's revelation, and again in our own culture, wise enough to not need the Bible. Wise enough perhaps to understand creation and conscience without the lens of the Bible. There are so many variations of this, but professing themselves to have that kind of wisdom, independent from God, superior to God, wiser than God and His revelation, they became morons. That's the Greek word. That's the Greek word. It's the word from which we get the word moron. Um, professing themselves to be wise, they became morons. Professing themselves to have a great enlightenment, they had the great endarkenment. They thought they were, you know, as they say, you think you're so smart. Um, and we all can relate to that. We all have to be careful about pride. Paul re- repudiates pride and boasting. And even in interpreting Scripture, we can think we're so smart. We can think we have all the answers. We need to rely dependently upon God's answers and upon God's revelation, God's truth, and cling to it rather than exchanging it for anything else, including our own supposed wisdom. They professed to be wise. They became morons. Now, what does this look like? What does stage two actually look like? And again, I think the easiest way to illustrate this is not uh, a trek through pagan Greek philosophy, which would have us all, uh, you know, our heads would be spinning, but instead to consider the manifestation of this same pattern in our own Western culture and particularly in the United States of America as we see this same pattern of stages. And especially when we think of stage two, we're thinking here of the 18th century Enlightenment, where mankind professed to be wise, profess to be unshackled now from the limitations of divine revelation in the Bible, professing some kind of lip service to general revelation, but again, putting aside the spectacles of Scripture so that they could autonomously evaluate creation and conscience for themselves and pick and choose which parts of the Bible that they wanted to be authoritative. What did Jesus really say versus what He didn't say? Let's cut and paste and so on. This is the endarkenment, which they call the enlightenment. What does stage two actually look like? Well, as we'll see in our bulletin insert, they they knew God, but they didn't glorify Him as God. By the time you get to the 1700s, the 18th century, you have a nation or a, a civilization, colonies, that have had a long history and pedigree of Biblical Christianity, Reformed Christians, Calvinistic Christians came over here and established their civilization with the Mayflower Compact, professing to set up their entire society and their government for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith. So, they knew God. They had both general and special revelation. They even had the mighty work of the Great Awakening. In the early to mid portion of the 1700s when the Enlightenment was really building momentum and, and coming on the scene, uh, you, you have the Great Awakening. Massive, massive conversions through, well, we just don't have time to, to go into it, but through the preaching of George Whitfield and Samuel Davies and Jonathan Edwards. A great revival of a, a deadening society that was falling away from the truth. So God showed them that great and marvelous work of the great awakening, but but in terms of the powers that be, the most influential people that were governing the society, even though the churches were full in terms of the the legislators, the most influential people of that time, they were still uh, dead in trespasses and sins to one extent or another. And they were intellectual idolaters. And they were card carrying members of the Enlightenment. And so, that vacuum of when Christians didn't act upon the truth that they'd received, that vacuum was filled with human reason and human opinion. And they subjected divine revelation to human standards, and they jettisoned and got rid of divine revelation in order to save morality. Think about that. We think typically today people get rid of the Bible so that they can go out and do whatever they want. Well, that's, that's later. That's stage three. We haven't gotten there yet. The, the people that first set the tone for getting rid of or uh, undermining or diluting the authority of God's revelation in Scripture, the people who started that movement did it to save morality. They said, look, there's all these embarrassing miracles in the Bible. Human reason can never be consistent with these things. So instead of uh, everybody rejecting all morality and every aspect of the Bible and the Christian faith, we're going to save morality and save Christianity and save the Bible by getting rid of the stuff that's offensive to human reason. Stuff that the Enlightenment is unhappy with we're going to get rid of that in order to save morality not to remove it See, the road to hell on earth or for eternity is always paved with good intentions so they're jettisoning divine revelation in the scriptures in order to save morality and so they give this condescending appreciation for Jesus because he's just another human teacher with human ideas that are really superior as far as You know, all the inconveniences and disadvantages that he had. Isn't it amazing that Jesus said as many true things as he did, but a lot of it is nonsense, so let's cut that out. And let's have uh, our own edited Bible. These people had a utopian, moralistic ideal. They wanted liberty and justice for all. They wanted righteousness and peace at a horizontal level. They wanted people to respect private property. They wanted people to have a moral compass they wanted traditional morality we need to recognize this is a stage of apostasy and spiritual decline don't think that just because somebody says hey i think we should believe in god and the bible in some sense and we should have liberty and justice for all and have these traditional moral principles that they're part of the solution no they're part of the problem They're part of the problem in the second stage that led to the third stage of immorality, which led to the fourth stage of perversion and has led us to the fifth stage of chaos. It's part of the problem because they're not accepting divine revelation on its own terms. Now look at your handout. I want to illustrate this because Romans 1 is saying this stuff happens in history and so we need to look to history to to see these things happening. Look at Thomas Jefferson. Look at Thomas Jefferson. In the uh, first quotation, of all the systems of morality, ancient or modern, which have come under my observation, none appears to me so pure as that of Jesus. I am a real Christian. That is to say, a disciple of the doctrines of Jesus. Second quote. He's a little more honest here. I am a materialist. Jesus takes the side of spiritualism. He preaches the efficacy of repentance towards forgiveness of sins. I require a counterpose or counterbalance of good works to redeem it, etc., etc. So I'm a disciple of Jesus, but I believe that if there's any future reward, it's on the basis of works, not on the basis of repentance and faith in Christ. Jesus believes in the spiritual realm. I'm pretty much just matter-in-motion materialism. Okay, okay. You're a real Christian, Um, and I'm George Washington. Third quote, according to the ordinary fate of those who attempt to enlighten and reform mankind, Jesus fell an early victim to the jealousy and combination of the altar and the throne, that is, the priests and the civil government. At about 33 years of age, his reason, having not yet attained the maximum of its energy, so Jesus wasn't quite fulfilling his potential nor the course of his preaching, which was but of three years at most. So if Jesus would have had more time to work out his views, he would have eventually looked a lot more like Thomas Jefferson, who's so superior, professing himself to be wiser than Christ. Presented occasions for developing a complete set of morals. So thanks to the founding fathers, we can now complete the work that Jesus inadequately began. But it is, isn't it great that he tried so hard and, and was able to hit the mark more times than we would have thought given his disadvantages. Hence the doctrines which he really delivered were defective as a whole and fragments only of what he did deliver have come to us mutilated, misstated and often unintelligible. By the way, that's what he's saying, the Gospels. He's saying that the Gospels, as we have them, are mutilated, misstated and often unintelligible. Professing themselves to be wise. Well, Jefferson came to the rescue. He came up with his own Bible. First quote there in the second section, I have made a wee little book, which I call the philosophy of Jesus. It is a paradigm or paradigm or framework of his doctrines made by cutting the texts out of the book and arranging them on the pages of a blank book in a certain order of time or subject. A more beautiful or precious morsel of ethics I have never seen. Blasphemous heretic. If he didn't repent, he's burning in hell. I don't say that with any pleasure, but it's true. Next quote. He made a digest of Jesus' moral doctrines, extracted in his own words from the evangelists and leaving out everything relative to his personal history and character. So let me get this straight. We're going to perpetuate traditional Christian moral values as Jesus declared them, at least in the parts that He left in His Bible. And we're going to do it by removing the personal history and person and character of Jesus Christ. You're going to have Christian ethics. This is his vision, by the way. He's thinking that by taking out the person and work of Jesus Christ from the Bible, it's going to enhance... It's going to enhance the society on this continent to be moral and, and, and ethical. Professing himself to be wise, he has been proven to be an utter fool. I'll use the English translation rather than the Greek. A fool. He says... Um, Again, number three, there will be found remaining the most sublime and benevolent code of morals which has ever been offered to man. This is Jefferson's Bible. I have performed this operation for my own use by cutting verse by verse out of the printed book and by arranging the matter which is evidently his and which is as distinguishable as diamonds in a dunghill. In case you were keeping track, he's saying that the New Testament, the Gospels, are a dunghill and he's pulling out the diamonds blasphemous, heretic. Founding father, founding fool. Among the sayings and discourses imputed to Jesus by his biographers, I find many passages of fine imagination, correct morality, and of the most lovely benevolence. And others again of so much ignorance, so much absurdity, so much untruth, charlatanism, and imposture as to pronounce it impossible that such contradiction should have proceeded from the same being. I separate therefore the gold from the dross. Restore to him the former. Oh, what a a wonderful good deed you've done. Restoring to Jesus his true wisdom through the lens of your own folly and leave the latter to the stupidity. So he's leaving, the, he's leaving us. This is us, right? This is us in our worship service. Thomas Jefferson is leaving the dross to the stupidity of some and roguery of others of his disciples. Now, again, what was Jefferson's actual vision? It was for morality, peace, justice, liberty. Following the outline, he says, the same God who gave us life gave us liberty at the same time. Truth is certainly a branch of morality and very important one to society. No one has a natural right to commit aggression on the equal rights of another. Nothing then is unchangeable but the inherent and inalienable rights of man. Give up money, give up fame, give up science, give the earth itself and all it contains rather than do an immoral act. But you see at this point the foolishness if you pick and choose from the Bible, who's to say they can't just snip, snip, and get rid of the definition of what's moral or immoral? What is the standard of this righteous society that you're looking to create? What is the standard of liberty? And what is the ultimate standard that holds rulers and political leaders accountable so that they don't oppress the people? You say God's given us liberty who defines that who is this god how do we know there is a god at the end of the day our bible now is just thomas jefferson cutting and pasting and this is a, one of the this is the author of the declaration of independence this is a man who was influential in the formation of our constitution this is a man who was elected president what is it twice thomas jefferson notice his moral foundation Reading, reflection, and time have convinced me that the interests of society require the observation of those moral precepts only in which all religions agree. Does that include Satanism? All religions? Again, somebody could just invent their own religion. And according to our religion, there is no liberty and justice for all. You see the nonsense here. He says everyone must act according to the dictates of his own reason. Well, that throws ethics right out the window. Every man does what's right in his own eyes. You think going back to the founding fathers is going to solve the problems? Okay? We have these riots and the chaos in our society because of the founding fathers. Because they snipped and cut out and pasted the Bible. Because they edited and rejected God's revelation. The most extreme forms of violence and evil and oppression in our nation today are the direct result of Jefferson's foolish vision. He says, It does me no injury for my neighbor to say that there are 20 gods or no god. It neither picks my pocket nor breaks my leg. But if a society is full of people that are educated to believe that it doesn't make a difference, whether there are 20 gods or no god, then they're not just going to pick your pocket, they're going to shoot your child in the kindergarten and then off themselves because there's no final judgment. What an utter fool. Thomas Jefferson. He says, taste cannot be controlled by law. We must resist at all costs any attempt to regulate our individual freedoms and to legislate our personal morality. So morality is just a matter of taste. Abusing children, well, that tastes good to one person and not to another. Nobody has a right to enforce their own personal moralities. Big surprise, my friends. Stage five grows out of stage two. His vision for America, the day will come when the mystical generation of Jesus by the supreme being as his father, the virgin birth, in the womb of the virgin will be classed with the fable of the generation of Minerva in the brain of Jupiter. But may we hope that the dawn of reason and freedom of thought in these United States will do away with this artificial scaffolding and restore to us the primitive and genuine doctrines of this most venerated reformer of human errors. Jesus. His vision is that we reject the virgin birth of Christ and that's going to advance the moral teachings of Jesus Christ. And people aren't going to be selfish, living as if they're their own God, now that you've taken out the true God. No, they're going to be loving and altruistic and unselfish and just like you see in our society today i mean it you see it worked it worked except not we could look at benjamin franklin you can see the same heretical beliefs and foolish utopian vision here james madison of whom some people try to deny that he was a deist Um, franklin franklin was not technically a deist but um, he did reject the person and work of christ He, he was a heretic Uh, James Madison, it's questionable. But what he did argue for was this, in terms of the nation. He said, Who does not see that the same authority which can establish Christianity in exclusion of all other religions may establish with the same ease any particular sect of Christians in exclusion of all other sects? So, God can't be the God of our nation. Christ can't be the King of our nation. The Bible can't be the basis of our national ethic and our national laws because the same authority that would do that and recognize that civil government is a servant of the true God of the Bible for good, the same one who could exercise that authority could turn and make the Methodist. You know, you you have to be a Methodist or we're going to burn you at the stake. Okay, that's his argument. It's an argument from abuse. The same argument says... We shouldn't punish people for murder because once you give the government authority to punish anybody, they could start punishing you for you know, helping a little old lady across the street. It's, it's, any institution can be abused. So I guess we shouldn't have any institutions. We shouldn't have parental authority. That can be abused. We shouldn't have governmental authority. That can be abused. Or we should just leave religion out and that couldn't possibly be abused. You've actually taken out any Court of appeal beyond the civil government to deal with abuse. And so government is abusive by definition because the Supreme Court is now the Supreme Court against whom there is no court of moral or ethical appeal. So how's that working out for James Madison? I don't know. But it's not working out well for our nation. And you can read the, the quote from John Adams where he denies that Calvinists are true Christians. Um, you know. Only heretics like John Adams are true Christians. So, my friends, the solution to the problems of our nation is not a return to the founding fathers. Stage 2 might seem appealing compared to stage 5, but stages 3 through 5 follow logically and necessarily in the providence and judgment of God from stage 2. If we don't start with glorifying God as God, which means He's God of the nation, God of your family, God of the whole earth. His word, His revelation is supreme and sovereign and authoritative across the board as the basis of morality. If you don't start by glorifying God as God and giving Him thanks, it's all going to continue. Right? Uh, Israel's repentance was not, well, in the days of Ahab, we're going to repent and go back to the days of Jeroboam. No, you need to go back to the days of David. If you're a fornicator, we're not calling you to repent and go back to the days of pornography. We're calling you to repent and go back to righteousness, purity. The solution to stage five is not to go back to stage two. The, The solution is repentance, to glorify God as God and to give thanks. And is this your response to God's revelation? We can all look at Jefferson and see the foolishness of his heretical teachings, but the fact is, do you and I pick and choose which commandments we're going to take seriously? Do we redefine biblical standards according to our own ideas, our own personality, our own family situation? Do we pick and choose Do we refuse to test our opinions against the Word of God? Or do we just drink down our own thoughts and and find self-satisfaction in our own opinions? My friends, let's examine ourselves. We can beat up on the founding fathers, but we're their spiritual children if we do not take this book seriously from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, everything in between. We may have disagreements. We may have different denominations. Okay, fair enough. But apart from this, we have no basis for ethics. And my friends, if you think that stage five, if you think what we're seeing today in our culture um, is the worst of it, it's just getting warmed up. Strap in and buckle your safety belt because it's just getting warmed up unless we repent. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we give You thanks and we glorify You as God while at the same time confessing that we have not done these things in the heartfelt and holistic way that You require. And so we claim the blood of Jesus to cleanse away our foolishness, our stubbornness, our pride, our boastfulness, And we pray that You would clothe us in the Lord Jesus Christ. That we would give no quarter to the enemies of Satan's kingdom. That we would remain on the Lord's side. That we would promote solutions which take us back to You. To Your glory. To Your goodness. To Your worship. To Your law. And to Your gospel. And we pray that through our witness and through the confrontational truth of Your Word, that You would save sinners and build Your kingdom, that we would ground and found ourselves, our families, our nation, our church, upon that one foundation of Christ and His teaching, so that when the wind and the waves and the storms come, they would not knock our house down, but that we would be secure, built upon the rock. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.